The Audiovisual, Part 3 The Nightline crew came back for its third and final visit. The whole tenor of the thing was different now, less like an interview, more like a sad farewell. Ted Koppel had called several times before coming up, and he had asked Maury, do you think you can handle it? Maury wasn't sure he could. I'm tired all the time now, Ted, and I'm choking a lot. If I can't say something, will you say it for me? Koppel said sure, and then the normally stoic anchor added this, if you don't want to do it, Maury, it's okay. I'll come up and say goodbye anyhow. Later, Maury would grin mischievously and say, I'm getting to him. And he was. Koppel now referred to Maury as a friend. My old professor had even coaxed compassion out of the television business. For the interview, which took place on a Friday afternoon, Maury wore the same shirt he'd had on the day before. He changed shirts only every other day at this point, And this was not the other day, so I break routine. Unlike the previous two Koppel-Schwartz sessions, this one was conducted entirely within Maury's study, where Maury had become a prisoner of his chair. Koppel, who kissed my old professor when he saw him, now had to squeeze in alongside the bookcase in order to be seen by the camera's lens. Before they started, Koppel asked about the disease's progression. How bad is it, Maury? Maury weakly lifted a hand halfway up his belly. This was as far as he could go. Koppel had his answer. The camera rolled the third and final interview. Koppel asked if Maury was more afraid now that death was near. Maury said no. To tell the truth, he was less afraid. He said he was letting go of some of the outside world, not having the newspaper read to him as much, not paying as much attention to mail, instead listening more to music and watching the leaves change color through his window. There were other people who suffered from ALS, Maury knew, some of them famous, such as Stephen Hawking, the brilliant physicist and author of A Brief History of Time. He lived with a hole in his throat, spoke through a computer synthesizer, typed words by batting his eyes as a sensor picked up the movement. This was admirable, but it was not the way Maury wanted to live. He told Koppel he knew when it would be time to say goodbye. For me, Ted, living means I can be responsive to the other person. It means I can show my emotions and my feelings, talk to them, feel with them. When that's gone, Maury is gone. They talk like friends. As he had in the previous two interviews, Koppel asked about the old asswipe test, hoping perhaps for a humorous response. But Maury was too tired to even grin. He shook his head. When I sit on the commode, I can no longer sit up straight. I'm listing all the time, so they have to hold me. When I'm done, they have to wipe me. This is how far it's gotten. He told Koppel he wanted to die with serenity. He shared his latest aphorism, don't let go too soon, but don't hang on too long. Koppel nodded painfully. Only six months had passed between the first Nightline show and this one, but Maury Schwartz was clearly a collapsed form. He had decayed before a national TV audience, a miniseries of death, but as his body rotted, his character shone even more brightly. Toward the end of the interview, the camera zoomed in on Maury. Koppel was not even in the picture, only his voice was heard from outside it. And the anchor asked if my old professor had anything he wanted to say to the millions of people he had touched. Although he did not mean it this way, I couldn't help but think of a condemned man being asked for his final words. Be compassionate, Maury whispered, and take responsibility for each other. If we only learn these lessons, this world would be so much better a place. He took a breath, then added his mantra, love each other or die. The interview was ended, but for some reason the cameraman left the film rolling, and one final scene was caught on tape. You did a good job, Koppel said. Maury smiled weakly. I gave you what I had, he whispered. You always do, Koppel said. Ted, this disease is knocking at my spirit, but it will not get my spirit. It'll get my body, but it will not get my spirit. Koppel was near tears. You done good, he said. You think so? Maury rolled his eyes toward the ceiling. I'm bargaining with him up there now. I'm asking him, do I get to be one of the angels? It was the first time Maury admitted 
talking to God. The Twelfth Tuesday, we talk about forgiveness. Forgive yourself before you die, then forgive others. This was Maury a few days after the Nightline interview. The sky was rainy and dark, and he was beneath a blanket. I sat at the far end of his chair, holding his bare feet. They were calloused and curled, and his toenails were yellow. I had a small jar of lotion, and I squeezed some into my hands and began to massage his ankles. It was another of the things I had watched his helpers do for months, and now, in an attempt to hold on to what I could of him, I had volunteered to do it myself. The disease had left Maury without the ability even to wiggle his toes, and yet he could still feel pain, and massages helped relieve it. Also, of course, Maury liked being held and touched, and at this point, anything I could do to make him happy, I was going to do. Mitch, he said, returning to the subject of forgiveness, there is no point in keeping vengeance or stubbornness. These things, these things I so regret in my life. Pride, vanity, why do we do the things we do? The importance of forgiving had been my question. I'd seen those movies where the patriarch of a family is on his deathbed and he calls for his estranged son so that he can make peace before he goes. I wondered if Maury had any of that inside him, a sudden need to say, I'm sorry, before he died. Maury nodded. Do you see that sculpture? He tilted his head towards a bust that sat high in a shelf against the far wall of the office. I'd never really noticed it before. Cast in bronze, it was the face of a man in his early 40s, wearing a necktie, a tuft of hair falling across his forehead. That's me, Maury said. A friend of mine sculpted that maybe 30 years ago. His name was Norman. We used to spend so much time together. We went swimming. We took rides to New York. He had me over to his house in Cambridge, and he sculpted that bust of me down in his basement. It took several weeks to do it, but he really wanted to get it right. I studied that face. How strange to see a three-dimensional Maury, so healthy, so young, watching over us as we spoke. Even in bronze, he had a whimsical look, and I thought this friend had sculpted a little spirit as well. Well, Maury said, here's the sad part of the story. Norman and his wife moved away to Chicago. A little while later... My wife Charlotte had to have a pretty serious operation. Norman and his wife never got in touch with us. I know they knew about it. Charlotte and I were very hurt because they never called to see how she was. So we dropped the relationship. Over the years, I met Norman a few times, and he always tried to reconcile. But I didn't accept it. I wasn't satisfied with his explanation. I was prideful. I shrugged him off. Maury's voice choked now. Mitch, a few years ago, he died of cancer. I feel so bad. I never got to see him. I never got to forgive. It pains me so much now. He was crying again, a soft and quiet cry. And because his head was back, the tears rolled off the side of his face before they reached his lips. Sorry, I said. Don't be, he whispered. Tears are okay. I continued rubbing lotion into his lifeless toes. He wept for a few minutes, alone with his memories. Mitch, it's not just other people we need to forgive. We also need to forgive ourselves. Ourselves, I said. Yes, for all the things we didn't do, all the things we should have done. You can't get stuck on the regrets of what should have happened. That doesn't help you when you get to where I am. I always wished I had done more with my work. I wished I had written more books. I used to beat myself up over it. And now I see that never did any good. Make peace. You need to make peace with yourself and everyone around you. I leaned over and dabbed at the tears with the tissue. Maury flicked his eyes open and closed. His breathing was audible now, like a light snore. Forgive yourself. Forgive others. Don't wait, Mitch. Not everyone gets the time I'm getting. 
Not everyone is as lucky. I tossed the tissue into the wastebasket and returned to his feet. Lucky? I pressed my thumb into his hardened flesh, and he didn't even feel it. The tension of opposites, Mitch, he said. Remember that. Things pulling in different directions. I remember, I said. I mourn my dwindling time, but I cherish the chance it gives me to make things right. We sat there for a while, quietly, as the rain splattered against the windows. The hibiscus plant behind his head was still holding on, small but firm. Mitch, Maury whispered. Uh-huh, I said. I rolled his toes between my fingers, lost in the task. Look at me. I glanced up and saw the most intense look in his eyes. I don't know why you came back to me. But I want to say this. He paused and his voice choked. If I could have had another son, I would have liked it to be you. I dropped my eyes, kneading the dying flesh of his feet between my fingers. For a moment I felt afraid, as if accepting his words would somehow betray my own father. But when I looked up, I saw Maury smiling through tears, and I knew there was no betrayal in a moment like this. All I was afraid of was saying goodbye. I've picked a place to be buried. Where's that, I said. Not far from here, on a hill beneath a tree overlooking a pond. Very serene, a good place to think. Are you planning on thinking there, I said. I'm planning on being dead there. He chuckled, I chuckled. Will you visit? Visit, I said. Just... Come and talk. Make it a Tuesday. You always come on Tuesdays. Oh, we're Tuesday people, I said. Right. Tuesday people. Come to talk then. He'd grown so weak so fast. Look at me, he said. I'm looking, I said. You'll come to my grave to tell me your problems. My problems? Yes. And you'll give me answers? I'll give you what I can. Don't I always? I picture his grave on the hill overlooking the pond, some little nine-foot piece of earth where they'll place him, cover him with dirt, put a stone on top. Maybe in a few weeks, maybe in a few days, I see myself sitting there alone, arms across my knees, staring into space. It won't be the same, Maury, I say, not being able to hear you talk. Ah, talk. He closed his eyes and smiled. Tell you what, after I'm dead, you talk and I'll listen. The 13th Tuesday, we talk about the perfect day. Maury wanted to be cremated. He had discussed it with Charlotte and they decided it was the best way. The rabbi from Brandeis, Al Axelrod, a longtime friend whom they chose to conduct the funeral service, had come to visit Maury and Maury told him of his cremation plans. And Al? Yes? Make sure they don't overcook me. The rabbi was stunned, but Maury was able to joke about his body now. The closer he got to the end, the more he saw it as a mere shell, a container of the soul. It was withering to useless skin and bones anyhow, which made it easier to let go. We're so afraid of the sight of death, Maury told me when I sat down. I adjusted the microphone in his collar, but it kept flopping over. Maury coughed. He was coughing all the time now. I read a book the other day, he said. It said as soon as someone dies in a hospital, they pulled the sheets over his head and they wheeled the body to some chute and they put it down. They can't wait to get it out of their sight. People act as if death is contagious. I fumbled with the microphone. Maury glanced at my hands. It's not contagious, you know. Death is as natural as life. It's part of the deal we made. He coughed again and I moved back and waited, always braced for something serious. Maury had been having bad nights lately, frightening nights. He could sleep only a few hours at a time before violent hacking spells woke him. The nurses would come into the bedroom, pound him on the back, try to bring up the poison. Even if they got him breathing normally again, normally meaning with the help of an oxygen machine, the fight left him fatigued the whole next day. The oxygen tube was up his nose now, 
I hated the sight of it. To me, it symbolized helplessness, and I wanted to pull it out. Last night, Maury said softly. Yes, I said last night. Last night, I had a terrible spell. It went on for hours, and I really wasn't sure I was going to make it. No breath, no end to the choking. At one point, I started to get dizzy, and then I felt a certain peace. I felt that I was ready to go. His eyes widened. Mitch, it was the most incredible feeling. The sensation of accepting what was happening, being at peace. I was thinking about a dream I had last week, where I was crossing a bridge into something unknown, being ready to move on to whatever's next. But you didn't cross it, I said. Maury waited a moment. He shook his head slightly. No, I didn't. But I felt that I could. Do you understand? That's what we're all looking for. A certain peace with the idea of dying. If we know in the end that we can ultimately have that peace with dying, then we can finally do the really hard thing. Which is, I said, make peace with living. He asked to see the hibiscus plant on the ledge behind him. I cupped it in my hand and held it up near his eyes. He smiled. It's natural to die. The fact that we make such a big hullabaloo over it is because we don't see ourselves as part of nature. We think because we're human, we're something above nature. He smiled at the plant. We're not. Everything that gets born dies. Do you accept that? Yes, I said. All right. Now, here's the payoff. Here is how we are different from those wonderful plants and animals. As long as we can love each other and remember the feeling of love we had, we can die without ever really going away. All the love you created is still there. All the memories are still there. You live on in the hearts of everyone you have touched and nurtured while you were here. His voice was raspy, which usually meant he needed to stop for a while. I placed the plant back on the ledge and went to shut off the tape recorder. This is the last sentence Maury got out before I did. Death ends a life, not a relationship. There had been a development in the treatment of ALS, an experimental drug that was just gaining passage. It was not a cure, but a delay, a slowing of the decay for perhaps a few months. Maury had heard about it, but he was too far gone. Besides, the medicine wouldn't be available for several months. Not for me, Maury said, dismissing it. And all the time he was sick, Maury never held out hope that he would be cured. He was realistic to a fault. One time I asked if someone were to wave a magic wand and make him all better, would he become in time the man he had been before? He shook his head. No way I could go back. I'm a different self now. I'm different in my attitudes. I'm different appreciating my body, which I didn't do fully before. I'm different in terms of trying to grapple with the big questions, the ultimate questions, the ones that won't go away. That's the thing you see. Once you get your fingers on the important questions, you can't turn away from them. And which are the important questions, I asked? As I see it, they have to do with love, responsibility, spirituality, awareness. And if I were healthy today, those would still be my issues. They should have been all along. I tried to imagine Maury healthy. I tried to imagine him pulling the covers from his body, stepping from that chair, the two of us going for a walk around the neighborhood the way we used to walk around campus. I suddenly realized it had been 16 years since I'd seen him standing up. Sixteen years? What if you had one day perfectly healthy, I asked Maury. What would you do? Twenty-four hours? Twenty-four hours, I said. Let's see. I'd get up in the morning, do my exercises, have a lovely breakfast of sweet rolls and tea, go for a swim, then have my friends come over for a nice lunch. I'd have them come one or two at a time so we could talk 
about their families and their issues and talk about how much we mean to each other. Then I'd like to go for a walk in a garden with some trees, watch the colors, watch the birds, take in the nature that I haven't seen now in so long. In the evening, we could all go together to a restaurant with some great pasta, maybe some duck. I love duck. And then we dance the rest of the night. I would dance with all the wonderful dance partners out there until I was exhausted. And then I'd go home and have a deep, wonderful sleep. That's it, I said. That's it. It was so simple, so average. I was actually a little disappointed. I figured he'd fly to Italy or have lunch with the president or romp on the seashore or try every exotic thing he could think of. After all these months lying there, unable to move a leg or a foot, how could he find perfection in such an average day? Then I realized this was the whole point. Before I left that day, Maury asked if he could bring up a topic. Your brother, he said. I felt a shiver. I don't know how Maury knew this was on my mind. I've been trying to call my brother in Spain for weeks and had learned from a friend of his that he was flying back and forth to a hospital in Amsterdam. Mitch, Maury said, I know it hurts when you can't be with someone you love, but you need to be at peace with his desires. Maybe he doesn't want you interrupting your life. Maybe he can't deal with that burden. I tell everyone I know to carry on with the life they know. Don't ruin it because I am dying. But he's my brother, I said. I know. That's why it hurts. I saw Peter in my mind when he was eight years old, his curly blonde hair puffed into a sweaty ball atop his head. I saw us wrestling in the yard next to our house, the grass stains soaking through the knees of our jeans. I saw him singing songs in front of the mirror, holding a brush as a microphone. And I saw us squeezing into the attic where we hid together as children, testing our parents' will to find us for dinner. And then I saw him as the adult who had drifted away, thin and frail, his face bony from the chemotherapy treatments. Maury, I said, why doesn't he want to see me? My old professor sighed. There is no formula to relationships. They have to be negotiated in loving ways, with room for both parties, what they want and what they need, and what they can do and what their life is like. In business, people negotiate to win. They negotiate to get what they want. Maybe, Mitch, you're too used to that. Love is different. Love is when you are as concerned about someone else's situation as you are about your own. You've had these special times with your brother, and you no longer have what you had with him, and you want them back. You want them never to stop. But that's part of being human. Stop. Renew. Stop. Renew. I looked at Maury. I saw all the depths in the world. I felt helpless. You'll find a way back to your brother, Maury said. How do you know? I said. Maury smiled. You found me, didn't you? I heard a nice little story the other day, Maury says. He closes his eyes for a moment and I wait. Okay, the story is about a little wave bobbing along in the ocean, having a grand old time. He's enjoying the wind and the fresh air until he notices the other waves in front of him crashing against the shore. My God, this is terrible, the wave says. Look what's going to happen to me. Then along comes another wave. It sees the first wave looking grim and it says, Why do you look so sad? The first wave says, you don't understand. We're all going to crash. All of us waves are going to be nothing. Isn't it terrible? The second wave says, no, you don't understand. You're not a wave. You're part of the ocean. I smile at the story and Maury closes his eyes again. Part of the ocean, he says. Part of the ocean. I watch him breathe in and out, in and out. The 14th Tuesday, we say goodbye.
It was cold and damp as I walked up the steps to Maury's house. I took in little details, things I hadn't noticed for all the times I'd visited. The cut of the hill, the stone facade of the house, the pachysandra plants, the low shrubs. I walked slowly, taking my time, stepping on dead wet leaves that flattened beneath my feet. Charlotte had called the day before to tell me Maury was not doing well. This was her way of saying the final days had arrived. Maury had canceled all of his appointments and had been sleeping much of the time, which was unlike him. He never cared for sleeping, not when there were people he could talk with. He wants you to come visit, Charlotte said. But Mitch? Yes, I said. He's very weak. The porch steps now, the glass in the front door. I absorbed these things in a slow, observant manner, as if seeing them for the first time. I felt the tape recorder in the bag on my shoulder, and I unzipped it to make sure I had tapes. I don't know why I always had tapes. Connie answered the bell. Normally buoyant, she had a drawn look on her face. Her hello was softly spoken. How's he doing, I said. Not so good, she said, biting her lower lip. I don't like to think about it. He's such a sweet man, you know? I knew, I said. This is such a shame, she said. Charlotte came down the hall and hugged me. She said that Maury was still sleeping, even though it was 10 a.m. We went into the kitchen, and I helped her straighten up, noticing all the bottles of pills lined up on the table, a small army of brown plastic soldiers with white caps. My old professor was taking morphine now to ease his breathing. I put the food I had brought with me into the refrigerator, soup, vegetable cakes, tuna salad. I apologized to Charlotte for bringing it. Maury hadn't chewed food like this in months, we both knew that, but it had become a small tradition. Sometimes when you're losing someone, you hang on to whatever tradition you can. I waited in the living room where Maury and Ted Koppel had done their first interview. I read the newspaper that was lying on the table. Two Minnesota children had shot each other playing with their father's guns. A baby had been found buried in a garbage can in an alley in Los Angeles. I put down the paper and stared into the empty fireplace. I tapped my shoe lightly on the hardwood floor. Eventually, I heard a door open and close, then Charlotte's footsteps coming toward me. All right, she said softly. He's ready for you. I rose and turned toward our familiar spot, then saw a strange woman sitting at the end of the hall in a folding chair. Her eyes were on a book. Her legs were crossed. This was a hospice nurse, part of the 24-hour watch. Maury's study was empty, and I was confused. Then I turned back hesitantly to the bedroom, and there he was, lying in bed under the sheet. I had seen him like this only one other time, when he was getting massaged, and the echo of his aphorism, when you're in bed, you're dead, began anew inside my head. I entered, pushing a smile onto my face. He wore a yellow pajama-like top, and a blanket covered him from the chest down. The lump of his form was so withered that I almost thought there was something missing. He was as small as a child. Maury's mouth was open, and his skin was pale and tight against his cheekbones. When his eyes rolled toward me, he tried to speak, but I heard only a soft grunt. There he is, I said, mustering all the excitement I could find in my empty till. He exhaled, shut his eyes, then smiled, the very effort seeming to tire him. My dear friend, he finally said. I am your friend, Maury, I said. I'm not so good today. Well, tomorrow will be better, I said. He pushed out another breath and forced a nod. He was struggling with something beneath the sheets, and I realized he was trying to move his hands towards the opening. Hold, he said. I pulled the covers down and grasped his fingers. They disappeared inside my own. I leaned in close, a few inches from his face. It was the first time I had seen him unshaven, the small white whiskers looking so out of place, as if someone had shaken salt neatly across his cheeks and chin. How could there be new life in his beard when it was draining everywhere else? Maury, I said softly. Coach, he corrected. Coach, I said. I felt a shiver. He spoke in short bursts, inhaling air, exhaling words. His voice was thin and raspy. He smelled of ointment. You are a good soul, he said. A good soul touched me, he whispered. He moved my hands to his heart. Here, 
felt as if I had a pit in my throat. Coach, I said, ah, I don't know how to say goodbye. He patted my hand weakly, keeping it on his chest. This is how we say goodbye. He breathed softly, in and out. I could feel his ribcage rise and fall. Then he looked right at me. Love you, he rasped. I love you too, coach, I said. No, you too. No something else. What else do you know? You always have. His eyes got small and then he cried, his face contorting like a baby who hasn't figured out how his tear ducts work. I held him close for several minutes. I rubbed his loose skin. I stroked his hair. I put a palm against his face and felt the bones close to the flesh and the tiny wet tears, as if squeezed from a dropper. When his breathing approached normal again, I cleared my throat and said I knew he was tired, so I would be back next Tuesday, and <clears throat> I expected him to be a little more alert, thank you. He snorted lightly, as close as he could come to a laugh. It was a sad sound just the same. I picked up the unopened bag with the tape recorder. Why had I even brought this? I knew we would never use it. I leaned in and kissed him closely, my face against his, whiskers on whiskers, skin on skin, holding it there longer than normal in case it gave him even a split second of pleasure. Okay then, I said, pulling away. I blinked back the tears and he smacked his lips together and raised his eyebrows at the sight of my face. I liked to think it was a fleeting moment of satisfaction for my dear old professor, he had finally made me cry. Okay, then, he whispered. Graduation Maury died on a Saturday morning. His immediate family was with him in the house. Rob made it in from Tokyo. He got to kiss his father goodbye. And John was there, and of course Charlotte, and Charlotte's cousin, Marcia, who had written the poem that so moved Maury at his unofficial memorial service, the poem that likened him to a tender sequoia. They slept in shifts around his bed. Maury had fallen into a coma two days after our final visit, and the doctor said he could go at any moment. Instead, he hung on, through a tough afternoon, through a dark night. Finally, on the 4th of November, when those he loved had left the room just for a moment, to grab coffee in the kitchen, the first time none of them were with him since the coma began, Maury stopped breathing, and he was gone. I believe he died this way on purpose. I believe he wanted no chilling moments, no one to witness his last breath and be haunted by it, the way he had been haunted by his mother's death notice telegram or by his father's corpse in the city morgue. I believe he knew that he was in his own bed, that his books and his notes and his small hibiscus plant were nearby, he wanted to go serenely, and that is how he went. The funeral was held on a damp, windy morning. The grass was wet and the sky was the color of milk. We stood by the hole in the earth, close enough to hear the pond water lapping against the edge and to see ducks shaking off their feathers. Although hundreds of people had wanted to attend, Charlotte kept this gathering small, just a few close friends and relatives. Rabbi Axelrod read a few poems. Maury's brother David, who still walked with a limp from his childhood polio, lifted the shovel, and tossed dirt into the grave, as per tradition. At one point, when Maury's ashes were placed into the ground, I glanced around the cemetery. Maury was right. It was indeed a lovely place. Trees and grass and a sloping hill. You talk, I'll listen, he had said. I tried doing that in my head, and to my happiness, found that the imagined conversation felt almost natural. I looked down at my hands, saw my watch, and realized why. It was Tuesday. My father moved through days of we, singing each new leaf out of each tree, and every child was sure that spring danced when she heard my father sing. A poem by E.E. E. Cummings, read by Maury's son Rob, at the funeral service. Conclusion I look back sometimes at the person I was before I rediscovered my old professor, I want to talk to that person, 
I want to tell him what to look out for, what mistakes to avoid. I want to tell him to be more open, to ignore the lure of advertised values, to pay attention when your loved ones are speaking, as if it were the last time you might hear them. Mostly, I want to tell that person to get on an airplane and visit a gentle old man in West Newton, Massachusetts, sooner rather than later, before that old man gets sick and loses his ability to dance. I know I cannot do this. None of us can undo what we've done or relive a life already recorded. But if Professor Morris Schwartz taught me anything at all, it was this. There is no such thing as too late in life. He was changing until the day he said goodbye. Not long after Maury's death, I reached my brother in Spain. We had a long talk. I told him I respected his distance and that all I wanted was to be in touch, in the present, not just the past, to hold him in my life as much as he could let me. You're my only brother, I said. I don't want to lose you. I love you. I'd never said such a thing to him before. A few days later, I received a message on my fax machine. It was typed in a sprawling, poorly punctuated, all-cap letters fashion that always characterized my brother's words. Hi, I've joined the 90s, it began. He wrote a few little stories, what he'd been doing that week, and a couple of jokes. At the end, he signed off this way. I have heartburn and diarrhea at the moment. Life's a bitch. Chat later. Signed, Sore Tush. I laughed until there were tears in my eyes. This book was largely Maury's idea. He called it our final thesis. Like the best of work projects, it brought us closer together, and Maury was delighted when several publishers expressed interest, even though he died before meeting any of them. The advance money helped pay Maury's enormous medical bills, and for that, we were both grateful. The title, by the way, we came up with one day in Maury's office. He liked naming things. He had several ideas. But when I said, how about Tuesdays with Maury, he smiled in an almost blushing way, and I knew that was it. After Maury died, I went through boxes of old college material, and I discovered a final paper I had written for one of his classes. It was 20 years old now. On the front page were my penciled comments scribbled to Maury, and beneath them were his comments scribbled back. Mine began, Dear Coach. His began, Dear Player. For some reason, each time I read that, I miss him even more. Have you ever really had a teacher? One who saw you as a raw but precious thing, a jewel that with wisdom could be polished to a proud shine? If you're lucky enough to find your way to such teachers, you will always find your way back. Sometimes it's only in your head. Sometimes it's right alongside their beds. He looked at me. The last class of my old professor's life took place once a week in his home by a window in his study where he could watch a small hibiscus plant shed its pink flowers. The class met on Tuesdays. No books were required. The subject was the meaning of life. It was taught from experience. The teaching goes on. I heard a small sad sound and stood a while among the tombs around. Wherefore, old friend, said I, are you distressed, now screened from life's unrest? O oh, not it being here, but that our future second death is near, when with the living memory of us numbs, and blank oblivion comes. Thomas Hardy, The To Be Forgotten Afterward, 20th Anniversary Edition I did go to Maury's grave. In fact, I've gone many times. At first it was to keep my promise, later to keep my connection. Sometimes people wear out on visiting the dead, but I had already lost touch with my old professor once while he was here. I would not do the same after he was gone. My most recent visit was just a week before typing these words, which are to be published on the 20th anniversary of this book. It was early fall, a time of returning students in hooded jackets and colorful leaves growing brilliant as they die. Many of those leaves blanketed the wet grass of Newton Cemetery as I walked the familiar route to the small slab that bears Maury's name. As I kneeled down, I noticed the dates on his marker, and I shivered. I was now closer to Maury's age during our Tuesdays, than I was to mine. Hi, coach, I began, my voice as always self-conscious during these conversations. How's it going up there? 
Looking back on the pages of this book, I see I shortened the full account of the particular talk where Maury asked me to visit his grave. When he first brought it up, I told him I'd planned on coming anyhow. He gave a knowing grin. Not the way some people come, he croaked. Don't leave your car running. Get out. Put down flowers. Get back in. Come when you have some time. Bring a blanket. A blanket? Some sandwiches. Sandwiches? And talk to me. About life. About your problems. You can tell me who's in the World Series. I laughed and teased him. Who lays a blanket in the middle of a cemetery, eats a sandwich, and talks to the air? They'll arrest me, I joked. But as I grow older, I think I know why he said this, and why it was so important to ensure my attendance, the way a good teacher does. Deep inside, it was not dying that truly rattled Maury. It was being forgotten. To that end, as it turns out, he needn't have worried. My old professor is better known after his passing than he was when he was with us. Since the publication of this small book in 1997, which was only written to help Maury pay his medical bills, grade schools, high schools, even colleges around the world have come to use it in their curriculums, something that would have pleased Maury immensely. A TV movie and a frequently produced theatrical play keep his wisdom alive on stage and screen. But Maury, I believe, would have most wanted to remain vibrant in the hearts and minds of his family and friends. And two decades after his ashes were lowered into the ground, he surely does. But will we? The Thomas Hardy poem that precedes this afterward is a haunting story about a man who hears voices beneath tombs, voices bemoaning a, quote, second death, when memories of the buried soul fade and oblivion awaits. It's something I think about a lot. I remember in writing my book, Have a Little Faith, Rabbi Albert Lewis pondering how long he would be recalled. It seemed a needless concern. He had so many admirers in the community. But he greatly pressed me to consider. His children, he said, certainly would remember him. His grandchildren as well. But their children? Perhaps through pictures. And their children's children? Well, ask yourself, can you even spell your great-grandparents' names? The truth is, short of making some kind of history, few of us can hope to be remembered in any meaningful way beyond two or three generations. How then can we hope to live on? How can death end a life but not a relationship, as my old professor often quoted? How is Maury, not rich, not famous, not a household name while he was alive, still managing to do it? I think I know the answer. Sometimes on Tuesdays, other people would visit my old professor, and they certainly did on days I was not scheduled. Over time, I noticed a pattern. Many who came determined to raise Maury's spirits spent an hour in his office and exited in tears. But they were not crying about Maury's sad fate. They were crying about their job, their divorce, their issues. I went in trying to cheer him up, they'd say, but pretty soon he was asking me about my problems, and I was telling him, and he was asking more, and I was really telling him, and then I started crying. I went in to comfort him, but I ended up being comforted by him. Finally, one Tuesday, I confronted Maury. I don't understand, I said. If ever anyone had finally earned the right to say, let's not talk about your problems, let's talk about my problems. It would be you. You're sick. It's a really tough disease. Why don't you just accept their sympathy? Maury raised an eyebrow. Mitch, why would I take like that? Taking just makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. It is a profound sentence, and so true, because the opposite, we know, is false. Taking never makes you feel alive. It may be the basis of marketing, commercialism, Madison Avenue, but we know what Maury said about not buying the culture. Taking a new car, a new suit, a new flat-screen TV, none of it 
will make you feel alive. It's a temporary thrill gone quickly when the new smell or the warranty wears off. Maury understood this. It's why many of his possessions could be described as older model. He was invested in something else, giving himself away. At some point during his dying, it became his immortality. Giving is living. And that, I can say, 20 years after its publication, is the biggest message of this book, a question I am often asked by readers. Sure, the other loving thoughts and aphorisms are essential to Maury's teachings, and at any given moment in life, you might find them coming to mind and shedding light. I know I do. But giving is living is more than something Maury said. It was his philosophy, his raison d'etre, maybe even his secret. At least it was a secret for me until the time when his lessons finally took hold, like dye that slowly permeates the fabric. After his death, as a result of his urging, I got more involved in my community, in charity, working with the poor or underprivileged. Eventually, this brought me to Haiti, operating an orphanage and visiting it every month. And that brought me almost exactly 20 years from my first Tuesday with Maury to a little girl who, at age five, suddenly developed a cancerous brain tumor. And once more, someone I cared about and visited regularly had been given a death sentence. Only this time, I was the old one and she was the young one, and there was no one else to step in. And so I brought her to America to live with us. It was the beginning, in Maury's finest tradition, of something I never suspected, my becoming a teacher. Suddenly, the lessons he'd imparted on our Tuesdays together needed repeating, not just to my inner soul, but to another human being, a small and precious child. Janine and I were determined to give her as rich a life as time and medicine would allow and teach her all that truly matters. In the year and a half that she has been with us, sleeping on a small mattress at the foot of our bed, giving to her has become my obsession, the largest consumption of my time. And I have never felt so alive. This is what I spoke to Maury about during my most recent visit to his grave. All I am learning, giving is living. Coach, you were so right. I think about him saying, I'm going to be the healthiest old man you ever saw. I used to say that too. But now I know you cannot bank on such things. Your blood, genetics, DNA, and future accidents are all beyond the reach of your declarations at age 5 or age 78. What is within reach is what Maury said all along. One day. One glance at the bird on your shoulder. One question. Is today the day I die? And one good response on the day the bird says yes. This is the response. That you spent your days giving. Of your time. Of your heart. Of yourself. That is how you live on. For a day. Or through others. For generations. Maury Schwartz never read a word of Tuesdays with Maury. Yet he still teaches to so many people. Why? Because he took time in his dying days to give to a wayward student. And I wanted to give something back and wrote this book. And someone gave it to someone who gave it to someone. And now look how large his classroom has grown for a man who is no longer here to teach it. I visit his grave you, upon reading these pages, visit his home, and we are connected, not as waves, but as part of the ocean, through a short silver-haired man who in touching us lives on. I can think of no better legacy from my old professor. I hope, wherever he is dancing now, it makes him smile. Mitch Album. Through my dying, I'm teaching people how to live so that when they come to the end of their life, they won't be so disappointed as to what they did with it. I was having trouble walking. Couldn't walk upstairs very well. 
go with my wife. We walk a few blocks. I'm tired. Oh, I thought, well, getting old. Then I go on a dance floor, and I stumble. Was that one of your solo dances, or did you actually have a partner then? Uh, I had my wife. Uh -huh. My solo dances, I never stumbled. <laughs> and I finally heard the fact that I had ALS. I was stunned, overwhelmed, shocked, non-believing, and say, it's not possible. That was my immediate reaction. I knew enough to know that it was fatal. I knew enough about Lou Gehrig, since he was my day. And I remember his speech, you know, and all that sort of thing, which you probably know very well. Today, well, luck. I feel like luckiest man yeah. on the face of the earth. Yeah, well, I didn't say that. I keep thinking about this thing I read the other day about Ted Turner. He says, I don't want on my tombstone. He never owned a network, you know. He doesn't want to die before he owns a network. See, what we've done, we've got a form of brainwashing going on. Owning things is good. Private property is good. Having lots of money is good. More and more money is good. It's all on the material level. And who is saying, hey, the most important things in life not material. Love, friendship, having some spiritual connection, being in a community of loving people has nothing to do with commercialism, has nothing to do with ownership, has nothing to do with money. And people are so conditioned and so befogged that they have no perspective on what's important. That's not what I mean by detachment. I mean by it, you let yourself be in the experience, and then going through it enables you then to be detached. You don't go through it, you're avoiding or denying it, which is very different. Well, okay, let's take an example of, of um, grieving, okay, over a lost uh, whatever. Friend. Okay, or grieving over a lost friend. How do you suddenly go from that to detachment? Not suddenly. You were born, you've cried. You know there's a natural end to your tears. You don't cry forever. So when that natural end comes, you say, okay, that's enough for now. I'm gonna go on with my life. Because if you don't have deep, deep feelings for each other, what's life about? If you're always afraid to feel deeply because you're gonna lose somebody, then you're missing out on life. My generation, it's married and gets divorced very quickly. Uh, yeah. It's like, if it's not working now, they're really not concerned about the yeah. long range. It's just not working now. We're gonna be out of it now. And they don't really think about where they're gonna be at your age. What, what wisdom can you shed on that kind of? There is no foundation, no secure ground upon which people to stand now if it isn't in the family. Not much in the society or in a workplace is going to support you. And if you don't have that support and love and caring and concern in the family, I don't think that very much. Now the poor kids that get divorced, I think they're, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know why they got married in the first place. They haven't figured out what they want from a partner. They don't know who they are. So who's marrying whom? I can't go shopping. I can't take care of all the things that have to be taken. I can't put out the garbage. I can't take care of the bank accounts. But I can take care and look at what I think is important in life. Mm -hmm. So I have both the leisure and the time and the impulse to do that. So basically you're saying the key to life is finding someone else to take out the garbage. Uh, that way you'd have enough time to concentrate on the big well, I've figured it out now. I feel much better. <coughs> That's a, <coughs> an easy question, really. Whenever people have asked me about having children, I don't say to them, have them, I don't have them. I say, there's no other experience that can substitute for it. There's no way of substituting for it. 
So I would not want to have missed that experience, even though you pay a painful price at the end. Used to go every Wednesday night to a church hall where they held something called Dance Free. It wasn't free monetarily. You paid money to get in. But you could dance in any way you wanted. By yourself, with another man, with a woman. Then there's great music, all these psychedelic lights. I was the oldest guy there. People come up, meet friends of mine, they say, they talk about it, oh, I remember that guy. He was far out, huh. and I would go like crazy. I revised my aphorism, and I really believe this to be true, that the only road to survival is for taking responsibility to and for each other with compassion. If we don't, I don't think we're going to make it. Well, why do you think it takes the light of death to make these things clear to us? The culture doesn't encourage it. You're so wrapped up in your own legal, egotistical things, career, family, having enough money, getting enough approval from people, going up the ladder, and on and on, meeting the mortgage, getting a new car, fixing the radiator when it breaks. You're involved in trillions of little acts just to keep going. And you don't get into the habit of standing back and looking at your life and saying, is this all? Is that what I want? Is that sufficient? Is there something I'm missing? Now, you need somebody to probe you or to pull you in that direction. It will not come automatically in this society. We don't encourage that kind of reflection. We encourage focus on the material. Consumerism, materialism, commercialism, computerism, and on and on. That's all a far remove from the philosophical, psychological, spiritual, detached way of trying to look at things. We all walk around as if we're sleepwalking. We really don't experience the world fully because we're half asleep doing the things automatically that we are supposed to do. And what we're supposed to do has nothing to do with having a reflective, deep-thinking attitude toward our life. But the important thing, really, to really learn how to give out love and let it come in. Let it come in. Too many of us have a hard time letting it come in. We think we don't deserve it. We think that, you know, if you let it in, you'll become too soft, or you'll be taken advantage of. You know, all kinds of excuses. But this guy Levine said it right. He said, love is the only rational act. And I think that's so true. So that's what you need, a little community of loving people. And that's what I've created. And I'm just sometimes overwhelmed by it. It brings me to tears. I can't keep the people away. I'm, the, I'm in the circle of people who exhaust you, right? Now you're in the circle of people who love me. Forgiveness is very important, Mitch. Well, what about forgiving yourself? Very important. I mean, for all the mistakes you made, for all the things you did you shouldn't have, for all the things you did that you should have. Forgive yourself. Don't get stuck on your regrets about what the things were that could have been different. Forgive yourself and go on. Right. Like yesterday, I had to cancel people. Right. I was too, too uh, exhausted, really. If you had come yesterday, you would have sat and read a book or something. Mm. I couldn't even talk. You were coughing all day yesterday? Oh, a couple hours. And then I was exhausted after that. A two-hour cough? Did they roll you over and try yeah. to bang on you? Yep. They did. Mm. I didn't went away, but 
it's so exhausting. After you, you, you ever get scared during these coughs that Mitch, you're not going to stop? I tell you the secret. I get scared, and I step back and say, "Okay, if this is it, I'll let it be." I mean, what do I want in my obituary? Teach it to the end. We hope you have enjoyed our presentation of Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album. Copyright 1997 by Mitch Album. And performance copyright 1997 by Brilliance Corporation. All rights reserved.